0: In the town of Chinon in western France, the Dauphin Charles holds court. His cause was crumbling all about him. Half of the country that he claimed to rule was in enemy hands, ruled by an infant king in England. Since the disaster at Agincourt 14 years previously, the French had won only a few minor victories and a number of crushing defeats. Decades of war with the old enemy and civil war between bitterly divided factions had brought Charles's cause to the precipice of destruction. Enemy armies were on the march and were now laying siege to the city of Orléans. All around him, his advisers bicker, go on the attack, stand and defend your ground, flee to Spain. As chaos reigned around him, he pondered words that a priest had once told him, that the persecutions of war, death and famine are the rods with which God punishes the crimes of people or princes. He was not a man free from sin. He had waged war all his life and had been forced to resort to pillage and murder, all just to survive. A profoundly religious man, he takes mass sometimes as much as three times a day, praying, begging to God that he send someone, anyone, to save his kingdom. Just then an attendant hurries towards him. He says that a teenage peasant girl from Lorraine has come and is asked to speak with him. She says that she comes with a message from God. and welcome to The Other Half. Episode 3.8, Joan of Arc, The Maid of Orléans. Last time, we finished off the story of Tamar of Georgia, seeing her solidify her position as a great heroine of her people. Today, we travel four and a half thousand miles west and a couple hundred years forward in time to tell the tale of possibly the greatest heroine of them all. If you look up online pretty much any of the women I've covered so far in this series, they will be described as the Joan of Arc of insert place name. Joan is the prototypical folk heroine. She is the gold standard on which they are all judged. She is, if I'm honest, the main reason I wanted to do this series, and I am so looking forward to spending some time with her over the next few weeks. As you all know, nothing gets me more excited than getting to delve into some medieval source material. But before I explode with excitement, I'd like to thank all of my wonderful patrons who keep the show going. If you too would like to support the podcast, then head on over to patreon.com forward slash the other half podcast. To all my new listeners, welcome. To the rest of you, welcome back. Joan of Arc can lay claim to being one of the most famous women in all of history. A teenage girl who rallied an army and saved a city, who persuaded a prince that she could win him his crown, and ultimately save her nation for which she would pay a terrible price. In her book, Joan of Arc, The Image of Female Heroism, Marina Warner says that Joan's story has survived so long and intrigued so many because it is almost unique. Quote, she is a universal figure who is female, but neither a queen, nor a courtesan, nor a beauty, nor a mother, nor an artist of one kind or another. She eludes the categories in which women have normally achieved a higher status that gives them immortality, and yet she gained it. She is one of the few historical personalities who, like Henry VIII, Florence Nightingale, Robin Hood and Davy Crockett is immediately known to any child. Just as a feather in the cap, green doublet and hose and a merry gallantry signify the figure of Robin Hood, so Joan is instantly present in the mind's eye. A boy's stance, cropped hair, medievalized clothes, armour, an air of spiritual exaltation mixed with physical courage. Since her death, Joan has become a heroine not only to all French people, but also variously to nationalists, monarchists, fascists, conservatives, liberals, socialists, communists, Catholics, Protestants, feminists, and resistant leaders everywhere. She is truly a universal figure, adaptable to any cause. You start to question if any of her story could possibly be true, Except for the fact that she is one of the best documented women in all the Middle Ages, certainly if you discount Queens. There are narrative chronicles, letters, journals, and logbooks that mention her. But there are two primary sources for her from which I will be drawing principally. The first of these is the record of her trial held in 1431, for which we remarkably have the minutes, and second, the nullification trial held 25 years later to annul the decision of the previous one and clear her name. Through these records we not only hear from people who are at the events I will be talking about but also from Joan herself explaining in her own words what she saw and what she heard. Even divorced from the story they will be remarkable sources for themselves as they show scenes from the ordinary life of peasants something that's very rare in chronicles and histories that mainly concern themselves with the affairs of kings and generals. Hers is a truly unbelievable story, and one indeed that you may know a little bit about, but it all really happened. Our story begins on St. Crispin's Day, 1415. On a wet and bloody day at Agincourt, English longbowmen cut down the flower of the French nobility by the hundreds. Almost their entire high command was dead or captured, leaving the Kingdom of France tottering on the abyss. The Plantagenet Kings of England and the Valois Kings of France had been at war now, on and off, for 80 years, with the prize being one of the most august crowns in all Europe. France was the largest and traditionally most powerful kingdom in Europe, But a disputed succession in 1337 led to successive kings of England claiming the French crown. By the early 15th century, the Hundred Years' War, as it would later be known, had entered its most deadly phase, and the English victory at Agincourt put its king Henry V in position to make his claim a reality. It was not only being defeated on the field of battle by a foreign enemy that had brought France to its knees, It was also bitterly divided internally. The king, Charles VI, had a severe mental illness. He experienced psychotic episodes and had delusions that he was made of glass and insisted on having iron rods sewn into his clothes for protection. This, naturally, strongly affected his ability to rule effectively, particularly in this time of crisis. A regency council was formed, led by Charles's wife, Isabel, but it was unable to prevent factions at court vying for control. And to quote Shakespeare, civil blood makes civil hands unclean. These divisions came to a head in 1407, when Charles's brother, Louis of Orléans, a leading light on the Regency Council, and possibly the Queen's lover, was murdered on the streets of Paris by the supporters of John the Fearless, the Duke of Burgundy. One of the most powerful nobles in Europe who controlled the lands both in modern and Burgundy, which is in eastern France, but also in the Low Countries and the Holy Roman Empire. The supporters of Louis of Orleans, known as the Armagnacs, after their leader Bernard d'Armagnac, sought revenge on John the Fearless for this murder, and this strife created enough chaos to allow Henry V of England to take the upper hand. After Agincourt, the Dauphin Charles, the son and heir of Charles VI, sought a rapprochement between the Armagnacs and Burgundians, and set up a meeting on a bridge at Monterreau near Paris. Under the flag of Pali, Duke John went on the bridge with only a few guards and knelt before the Dauphin, whereupon one of Charles's attendants drew an axe and slammed it into the Duke's head. All the Burgundians present were massacred, and any hope of peace between the two warring parties was at an end. John's son, Philip, the new Duke of Burgundy, signed an alliance with England's Henry V, and together they conquered all of northern France, taking Paris and capturing King Charles VI. In the Treaty of Troyes, signed in 1420, Charles VI agreed to marry his daughter Catherine to King Henry, and that their children, not his, would inherit the throne of France, uniting the French and English crowns for the very first time. Of course, the Dauphin did not go along with this, and set up a rival court, splitting France in two between the Anglo-Burgundian North and the Armagnac-controlled South. Had Henry V lived longer, he may have been able to finish off the Dauphin and take the whole country. But in 1422, he fell ill and died on campaign at the age of just 35. His father-in-law, Charles VI of France, died just two months later, meaning that the throne of both kingdoms passed to Henry's nine-month-old son, Henry VI. Because sometimes history just likes to watch the world burn. Command of the English armies in France passed to the Duke of Bedford, one of Henry V's brothers, and he continued to drive home the attack on the Dauphin's forces. By now, much of northern and central France lay in desolation. The French chronicler Thomas Bassin wrote, quote, From the Loire to the Seine, and from there to the Somme, nearly all the fields were left for a long time, for many years, not merely untended, but without people capable of cultivating them, except for rare patches of soil, for the peasants had been killed or put to flight. We ourselves have seen the vast plains absolutely deserted, uncultivated, abandoned, empty of inhabitants, covered with shrub and brambles. Indeed, in most of the more thickly wooded districts, dense forests were growing up. The war touched almost the entire kingdom, including the little village of Donremy in the upper Meuse Valley, where a girl lived who had changed the course of French history forever. Joan was born in around 1412 to Jacques and Isabelle d'Arc, an ordinary peasant family in a small enclave of Armagnac controlled land surrounded by pro Burgundian forces in eastern France. This is why her name in English is Joan of Arc, which is a literal translation of her name. Her village was raided and burned several times during her young life. As befits a border region, life there was hard and filled with danger even when armies were not on the march, bandits plagued the countryside. Even the children were at it. At her trial, Joan said that the children of the village would fight battles with those of surrounded Burgundian villages, though she denied that she played any part in them. Her life, according to her own testimony, was one of domesticity, interrupted by the upheaval caused by war. Helping her mother with household tasks, leaving the business of farming largely to her father, and their soldiers were on their way when she would help her father herd the animals to safety. Life was not always so dangerous, though. She remembered playing in the fields with her friends, singing and dancing in the woods, where there was a tree said to be frequented by fairies, nearby which was a fountain which was said to have healing powers. She recalled placing garlands on the branches of the fairy tree, presumably as an offering to fairies, but denied ever seeing them there. It's worth noting that at the trial, the prosecution lawyers were attempting to paint Joan as a fantasist, a heretic, a witch and a wannabe man, which is why we know the things that I'm telling you. We will return to this when we get to talking about her trial in a later episode. She appears to have been a polite, dutiful and fairly unremarkable child. She did crafts with her mother and boasted of being the best sewer and spinner in the whole region. She helped out her father when needed, went to church with everyone else, and seemed set to live a life like almost every other peasant girl in French history, important to those who knew her, but otherwise wholly forgotten. Everything changed, though, on one fateful summer's day. She later related it as follows, When I was 13 years old, I had a voice from God to help me govern my conduct and the first time I was very fearful. And came this voice about the hour of noon in the summertime in my father's garden. I had not fasted on the day preceding that day. I heard the voice on the right hand side towards the church, and rarely do I hear it without a brightness. This brightness comes from the same side as the voice is heard. It is usually a great light. The voice was sent to me by God, and after I had thrice heard this voice, I knew that it was the voice of an angel. This voice has always guarded me well, and I have always understood it clearly. Now, at the trial, there was an immense amount of focus on these voices, and Joan was questioned again and again on them over several days, with each inquisitor trying every gotcha tactic in the book to try and catch her out. Somewhat unsurprisingly... This means that we have got quite the variety of testimonies from Joan about exactly what and from whom her missions were conveyed. Was it from God directly? Was it from angels? Was it from saints? Joan related all three as options. But for now, let's just say that she had visions from heaven and became convinced that she had to fulfil the will of God. What was his will? in Joan's own words, they were to, quote, lead another life and perform wondrous deeds. For you are she whom the King of Heaven has chosen to bring reparation to the Kingdom of France and help and protection to King Charles. Just a note, Joan frequently refers to the Dauphin as King Charles, but since that title was very much in dispute and he wasn't crowned, I will continue to call him the Dauphin, at least for the time being. As we shall see, Joan was not a young woman of nuance. She was all action. Once she undertook to do something, she did it with all the fervour of an evangelist. Now, I'm not going to be in the business of saying whether or not she did actually hear voices from God. I find it very hard to believe that she did not vehemently believe that she had done so. Everything that she is about to do proves that she was no fraud. This period, or really any period in time, was not short of people who claimed to have been sent on a divine mission, or who claimed to have obtained wisdom from on high. Women, of course, have no formal role in the Catholic Church, and so we see quite a few of them throughout the Middle Ages emerging as prophets or visionaries. So the notion of a woman saying that she had heard a message from God was not that unusual, But Joan does stand out from the rest in that she was, eventually, taken seriously. Remember, this was a world where miracles and angels were taken very seriously and believed in. Don't make the mistake of ascribing 21st century secularism and scepticism to this period. To a girl like Joan and everyone around her, the existence of God was unquestionable. It was as much a fact as gravity is to us. Now, the question you may be asking is, was Joan telling the truth? Was she really communing with God? Well, it's up to you whether you choose to believe her or not. Historians have since posited any number of explanations, from schizophrenia to tuberculosis, to explain these visions. None of these quite fit her example. And in any case, Trying to diagnose a mental illness from 600 years ago is a fool's errand if ever I heard it. And of course, believing in the truth of her story can only be a matter of faith. And that's not what history or this podcast is about. What's important to me and this series is not whether or not she actually heard messages from God, but that she believed she had and what she did next. She continued to see visions and hear voices over the next three years as she continued to grow up. Then in 1428, after she turned 16, she says the voices instructed her that her mission had now started, that she had to go and relieve the siege of Orléans. This city was the gateway into central France and the heart of Armagnac territory. If it fell into English hands, then there was a very real chance that the Dauphin's cause would be lost forever and the Kingdom of France entirely subsumed into that of England. Armed with the certainty of the righteousness of her mission and nothing else, she travelled to the town of Valculeur, the nearest place with a significant garrison loyal to the Dauphin Charles. Bold as brass, she went up to the captain of the guard, a man called Robert de Baudricourt, and asked him to take her to see the Dauphin. As one might expect, he sent this precocious teenager away, dismissing her as a fantasist. She then went home for a bit, then came back to Valculeur a little while later, told de Baudricourt the same story, and again he told her to go away. The third time she went to him, however, he listened. By now, she had become something of a local celebrity in Valculeur. On one of her visits, she had met one of de Baudricourt's soldiers, a man called Jean de Metz, who said that she had told him, quote, "...I have come here to the king's chamber to speak to Monsieur Robert de Baudricourt, so that he will take me to the king or have me taken to him, and he hasn't troubled about me or my words. Nevertheless, before mid-Lent, I must go before the king, even if I wear my feet off to the knees, for no dukes or kings or anybody else in the world can recover the kingdom of France." There is no aid but myself, although I should rather drown myself before the eyes of my mother, for it isn't of my estate. But it is necessary that I come, and that I do this, for our Lord wills that I do it. Her fame had even reached the ears of the Duke of Lorraine, the local liege lord, who invited Joan to come speak with him and his son in law, Rene of Anjou. And is likely his influence that caused de Baudricourt. To change his mind, and arrange for Joan's journey to the Dauphin's court at Chinon. Now, this journey would be no joke. The royal town was around 270 miles away, and the journey would take them through a lot of Burgundian-controlled territory. This wouldn't be a simple matter of leaving the town and walking or riding away. She certainly couldn't go alone, as she was a young, unaccompanied woman who would be easy pickings for bandits or raiders. For transport, she was given a horse, and for protection, she was given a small escort, including a royal messenger, Collet de Vienne. Word had already been sent to Chinon of Joan's arrival, and Collet would be vital in ensuring Joan's message was believed and then in disseminating it to the people. That only left her disguise. It was decided that it would be safest if she pretended to be a man. So her hair was cut and a black woolen hat placed on her head. She wore a man's riding outfit, all in black and grey, anything to look unremarkable and male. They travelled mostly at night and kept their heads down. And it worked. And on the 23rd of February, 1429, she arrived at Chinon and asked to see the Dauphin. Let's just stop for a moment and just reflect on this. Joan was still a teenager, only 17, and had spent almost her entire life in her small village in eastern France. Now, she was bound to enter the court of the Dauphin, which, despite the death and destruction all around, was still one of opulent luxury and privilege. Dressed in travelling clothes and her hair still cropped in a male style, she would have looked utterly incongruous, and was totally out of her comfort zone. This was not a time when women were encouraged to be bold, to stride up to a king and tell him what to do. It's worth noting at this point that a woman wearing men's clothing was not merely unusual, it was expressly forbidden by the Bible. The Old Testament book of Deuteronomy called it, quote, an abomination unto the Lord. But, as I said before, she was an all-in kind of woman, and so confidently strode up to the royal court. What happened next is subject of quite a bit of conjecture and legend. Under questioning, Joan herself provided several slightly differing versions, and there have been other accounts that were written later, which are based seemingly mostly on hearsay. The guiding hand behind all of this was Yolanda of Aragon. She was Charles's mother-in-law, and the mother of René of Anjou, whom Joan had met before. He had likely sent advance word of Joan to his mother, and she immediately recognised her potential value. Yolanda was a powerful woman in her own right, providing many men and counsel to the Dauphin. With Charles's mother now in English hands, Yolanda took on the dual role as a surrogate mother and close adviser. She was smart, ruthless and driven, determined to do whatever it took to see her son-in-law succeed. She was, at that point, preparing an army to go and relieve the besieged city of Orléans, but she knew that her men lacked belief. France had not won a major victory in the field for a very long time, and her soldiers lay in fear of the English longbow and man-at-arms. France needed a prophet, A figurehead, a leader to launch them in the battle. The Dauphin couldn't do that, he couldn't be risked on the battlefield. But maybe this Messiah from the East could be that person. However, Yolanda was not going to bet her army and Charles' kingdom on some stories she'd heard from her son. She needed to hear from Joan and test her herself to make sure. Joan was brought before Charles and his closest advisers. Whereupon she was given her first test. She was asked which of the men before her was the Dauphin. These were the days before images of kings were commonplace. She may have seen his face on a coin, but nowhere else. But, according to Joan, the voices had already told her who Charles was, so she picked him out without difficulty. Having passed this opening test, she was asked why she had come. Her response was simple relieve the siege of Orléans, drive the English out of France, and lead Charles to his coronation at Reims. This was quite the pitch coming from anyone, still less a teenage peasant girl in men's clothing. But in this deeply religious time, the idea that Joan might be telling the truth, that she might be the saviour that France had been crying out for, was intoxicating. As I said before, Charles was a devout man, And he believed that France's current woes were a result of divine punishment for the sins of the House of Valois. What if he believed a false prophet, an instrument of the devil, and led his people to disaster? But, then again, what if he turned down a true prophet and angered the very God that had offered him deliverance? It was believed then that God only intervened in human affairs once all other avenues had been exhausted when all other hope had been lost. France seemed to be at rock bottom. Maybe their God had come through for them, but they had to be sure. But who do you ask if someone is God's prophet or not? Well, you go to the experts, specifically the Theological Department of the University of Paris, one of Europe's oldest and most venerable centres of scholarship. However, much like France itself, the theologians of Paris were split down the middle, with half remaining in the English controlled capital and the others fleeing south to Charles's court, and it was they that Charles consulted. Their leader was the Chancellor of the University in Exile, Jean Gerson. He was not at Chinon, but years before he had written On the Proving of Spirits, a treatise which provided a kind of checklist to ascertain whether someone was a genuine messenger from God or not. Since Joan was a woman, the first test was on her integrity, or to put it another way, her purity. Despite her somewhat blasphemous clothing, she claimed to be an unmarried, pious young woman and a virgin. Remember that Christianity put a lot of store on the value of female virginity, and it was believed at the time that this untainted state protected women from the wiles of the devil. So, Joan was taken into a back room and subjected to a physical examination by two ladies of the court to see if she was indeed a maid, or pucelle, as it is said in French. She passed this test, and so, next, she was questioned at length by the theologians about her life, her faith, and her vision. The Bible did offer examples of female prophets. God had sent Deborah and Judith, for example, to save the Israelites. Maybe now he had sent Joan to save France. After interrogating her at length, the theologians were convinced that she was telling the truth. And so they moved to step three, which was to consult the most eminent cleric on the Armagnac side, Archbishop Jacques Gelu. He firmly believed that God would send a messenger to deliver France from English tyranny, but he counseled the men at Chinon that it didn't mean that Joan was that person. He reminded them that she was a young peasant girl whose gender and lack of education made her susceptible to devilish intervention, and her home near the Burgundian border meant that deliberate sabotage couldn't be ruled out. He recommended that Charles double his prayers and consult more widely before trusting in Joan. If there was evil in her, then it couldn't stay hidden forever. So, Charles gathered every single theologian that he could find that was loyal to him and sent Joan to be questioned by them at Poitiers. Thus began a three-week ordeal for Joan as she was interrogated by a legion of men probing and testing her to check if her story checked out. They too were using the checklist outlined by Gerson and in their report they said that they were testing her in two ways. Quote, by using human wisdom to inquire about her life, her behaviour and her aims, and by devout prayer, seeking a sign of some actual or hoped for divine deed through which it could be judged that she has come by the will of God. The issue was that unlike most female visionaries of the time, she came with no ecclesiastical recommendation. No cleric knew her to attest to her character or or the veracity of her claims. And of course, there was the fact that she was not content just to tell people of what she had heard from God. She was saying that it was his will that she lead the armies of France herself. Her, a teenage female peasant with no military experience, wanted to lead the relief of one of France's most important cities, which, if it should fall, could be a great bridgehead for the English to destroy Armagnac, France. Let's be clear here, Charles was being asked to gamble his crown on the say-so of a 17-year-old woman he had never met. It was quite the ask, and explained all the rigmarole that he put Joan through. There was no precedence for this, and the stakes could not be higher. Finally, after three weeks of intense questioning and probing, the theologians concluded that, quote, no evil is found in her, only goodness, humility, virginity, piety, integrity and simplicity. Now the last of those sounds like a bit of a dig, but actually it was a good thing. Charles was warned that, quote, to doubt or discard her without there being any appearance of evil in her would be to reject the Holy Spirit and render oneself unworthy of God's help. Their advice? Quote, the king should not prevent her from going to Orleans with his soldiers, but should have her escorted there honourably, placing his faith in God. Even then, with that recommendation in place, there was one final test. Yolanda of Aragon, Charles's mother-in-law and trusted advisor, inspected personally Joan's virginity one last time. It is from there that that Joan stopped being merely a maid. She became the maid, Jeanne la Pucelle, as she is known in France to this day. She had passed her test. As the army was prepared, Joan prepared a little bit of trash talk for the English. With the help of some clerks, she wrote a letter to the boy king of England and his regent in France, the Duke of Bedford. This is one of the most remarkable bits of historical correspondence I've ever read because it appears to be right out of a boxing promoter's playbook. They had an underdog, a challenger that no one has heard of. What do you do? Swing for the fences and see what happens. Quote, King of England, and new Duke of Bedford, who call yourself regent of the Kingdom of France, do justly by the King of Heaven Render to the maid who is sent here of God, the King of Heaven, the keys of all the good cities that you have taken and violated in France. She has come here from God to restore the royal blood. She is all ready to make peace if you will deal rightly by her, acknowledge the wrong done France and pay for what you have taken. And all of you, archers, companions of war, nobles and others who are appear before you, And if this is not done, expect news the maid, who will go to see you shortly to your very great damage. King of England, if you do not do this, I am the commander of the army, and in whatever place I shall find your people in France, I will make them go, whether they will or not. And if they will not obey, I will have them all killed. I am sent here by God, the King of heaven, each and all to put you out of all France. And if you will obey, I will be merciful. And stand not by your opinion, for you will never hold the kingdom of France through God, King of Heaven, Son of St. Mary. It will be thus ruled by King Charles Seventh, true inheritor. For God, the King of Heaven, wishes it. And this to him is revealed by the maid, and he will enter Paris in good company. If you will not believe the news from God and the maid, in whatever place we shall find you. We shall strike in your midst, and will make so great a hurrah that for a thousand years there has not been one in France so great if you do not deal justly. And you may well believe that the King of Heaven will send more strength to the maid than you will be able to lead in all your assaults against her and her good soldiers. And when the blows fall, we shall see who will have the better right from God of heaven. You, Duke of Bedford, the maid begs you and requires of you that you work not your own destruction. If you listen to her, you will yet be able to come in her company to where the French will do the finest deed that ever was done for Christianity. That is quite the statement of intent, eh? I've said it before, Joan never did things by halves she had a laser-beam focus on what she wanted to do and how she would do it. After that little bit of theatre, there was a little bit more. She was presented publicly to the Dauphin for the first time, where they reenacted her picking him out of a crowd of advisors. The conclusions of the theologians that examined Joan were copied and distributed as widely as the Armagnacs could, spreading the word of the maid and the blessing she had brought France. They dug through all the theological texts that they could find, looking for any kind of prophecy of her coming to add to the legend. The best that they could come up with was from the monk Geoffrey of Monmouth, who wrote the following as a prophecy from no less than Merlin himself A virgin ascends the backs of the archers and hides the flower of her virginity. This was you know, a bit of a stretch as a foretelling of the coming of Joan of Arc, but it did the trick. To really hammer home the Arthurian theme, she asked the Dauphin to send people to the town of Saint-Catherine-de-Fierbois, where she had stayed the night on her journey from Valculeur. There, she said, they would find a sword which she would use against the English. So the king's men went to Saint-Catherine and, to their surprise, found there a sword inside a coffer in the High Altar, a coffer that, apparently, hadn't been opened for 20 years. Arthur had Excalibur, Joan had the Sword of St Catherine. Now, I hate poo-poo on the miracle here, but it was quite normal for soldiers to leave weapons at the Altar of St Catherine to give thanks to their survival in battle. Far from them miraculously finding a sword in a dusty old box, They probably just sifted through a pile that they had lying around. But let's not the truth get in the way of good legend. So the maid had her sword. Now she needed her armour. Now this wasn't dug out of the lost property. Charles had a full suit of armour handmade for her by his own personal master armourer. Now we don't know exactly what it looked like, as all armour of the period was different and depending on the wealth and status of the wearer. We know that it was white harness, meaning that it was plain, without embellishment, and given her frame, it would have been relatively slight. It was a full suit, so she would have been head to toe in plate armour, with a helmet, greaves and gauntlets. The whole thing would have been very heavy, but would offer good protection against attack. Finally, she needed a standard. This was designed by a Scotsman living in Tours called Hamish Power. It featured fleur-de-lis, the symbol of the French monarchy, on a field of white, symbolising virginity and purity, in other words, herself. On it was written the words Jesus Maria, or Jesus and Mary to you and me, and finally a painting of Christ sitting in judgement over the world, flanked by the angels. So, the montage was finished, she was ready. France was ready. The English, chortling over their beers at the presumption of this peasant maiden, wouldn't know what hit them. But unfortunately, you will be joining them in their ignorance, unless of course you've read ahead, because this is where I will leave you for this week. Next time, Joan smashes the besiegers at Orléans and leads the French armies to victory, but her glory wouldn't last forever. And she would eventually fall into enemy hands.